From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Welcome to our show today. This is the midterm edition of Public Reading Club. As I have been doing this show um, with the intention of making it my enrichment project here at the Western Connecticut State University MFA program. I like to call it the Westcon MFA for short. Uh, Nobody else does. But I decided to use an episode of Public Reading Club to kind of collect and share ideas uh, about writing advice. And I wanted to share my own story about the best piece of writing advice I ever got. Um, And then we have a really fantastic guest coming on, prolific nonfiction writer Mike Sager, to share some of his tips for better writing. And then we've collected a couple of cool clips that we found while doing this show that will serve as little snippets of writing advice from some of our previous guests. So stay with us. Um, This will be Public Reading Club. The story of the best writing advice I ever got. When I was a kid, I was really obsessed with the movie Permanent Midnight and Jerry Stahl, the writer who wrote ALF and uh, Twin Peaks and several other TV shows while he was a huge heroin addict. It was a great movie starring Ben Stiller and Elizabeth Hurley and uh, it would, became a great introduction to kind of the world of uh, writing, both nonfiction and fiction, and people who kind of toted the line between the two. And that was the kind of writer I ultimately wanted to be. Um, I actually found Jerry Stoll's email address kind of a few years after the movie came out, and I started emailing him stories and things that I'd written, and I'm not sure if he actually ever read them, but he always sent back like the most encouraging responses. And a few years went by, and I got a job at the Maspeth branch of the Queens Public Library, and there was a guy in the library, also named Jerry, but not not Jerry Stoll, who was this kind of older dude who always dressed in black, like kind of like black on black and uh, kind of looked like a mod guy. And he and I got to talking one day and he asked me what kind of books I was into and what I was reading. So I said that I was reading Jerry Stahl's new book. It was called Perv, A Love Story. Very intense kind of like coming of age story about like some some runaways essentially and um jerry who worked in the library said i know jerry Stoll." and he went on to explain to me jerry that is who worked in the library that he had had himself a career as a nonfiction writer and a novelist and he had written i think it was about a dozen science fiction novels and his ex-wife uh, was also a writer and she actually got an interview for I get uh, for I forget which magazine but she'd gotten an interview with Charles Manson while he was in prison and and Jerry had photos of the incident and he was a very interesting guy and the more I got to know him uh, there's a scene uh, very early in permanent midnight where uh, 
Jerry Stoll is going to get uh, lessons in writing pornography. And um, it's by a woman who used to be a nun and there was religious imagery all over her house. And Jerry uh, told me that the woman was actually his wife and the house uh, was actually his apartment. Um, uh, so Jerry had this crazy connection to writing. And uh, I really kind of got friendly with this guy. And I wanted to know more about him. He wasn't super forthcoming, although the next day after I saw him, he did bring in a magazine where on the contributors page he was like right next to William Burroughs and I think Norman Mailer or something like that. He, Like I said, he had had um, a long career in what they called the magazine industry, the men's magazine industry, and he had done, uh, like I said, a bunch of novels, mostly under pseudonyms. He even used women's names uh, for his pen name. But Jerry was a very interesting guy. So fast forward a little bit, a couple days, and I remember that I had Jerry Stahl's email. And I emailed Jerry Stahl to say that I had met this guy who kind of claimed to know him. And Jerry emailed me back, I remember very vividly, saying, yep, I know Jerry. He was the guy who taught me never to write with my shoes on. And that became the best piece of writing advice I think I ever got. You shouldn't write with your shoes on, ever. You should never really write in a haste. It only leads not only to mistakes, but it doesn't really lead to the type of meditation that makes for good writing. I think that's why in some of the MFA programs and in some of the things that you read about writing, it's always asking you to uh, do these exercises and writing prompts. Uh, it's really just to get you more comfortable. And I think writing with your shoes on literally and figuratively probably puts you in a less comfortable position than if you were uh, in flip-flops or some other type of open-toe shoes or, uh, you know, maybe some slippers, you know. And uh, I always think of that image. Um, the thought of writing um, with no shoes on or, or writing in that comfortable state was reinforced at the time when I saw the movie Wonder Boys and the character of Grady Tripp, which was created in the novel by Michael Chabon, um, always wears an old, dirty bathrobe. Well, it's not really dirty, but it's just old, ugly bathrobe um, when he writes. And I think that there's a certain level of uh, kind of unloosening your your shoelaces that you need to do as a writer um in many senses i think it's all about being comfortable in front of the computer and you can sometimes be comfortable after a while i think when you don't have a bunch of time i think that's what ultimately it leads you to is is writing nicer faster ultimately you're being comfortable even though you're 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 getting to that place by taking your time and being comfortable you ultimately i think you find the confidence to write faster so that was the best piece of writing advice i ever got from uh, a writer named jerry francis shelley 
who gave that advice to Jerry Stahl, who um, reiterated it to me. So I, um, that's the piece of advice that I give whenever I get the chance to talk about writing. And I really think that if more people kind of uh, harnessed that, they would write better. If they tried to do it in a comfortable state and to tell the story step by step, I think that that's something that took many years for me is to get comfortable with knowing, um, working through the sequence of a story. So that's my advice, which was uh, passed down to me by a couple of experienced writers. And I think uh, we'll, um, well, I'll always cherish that, that kind of advice. Um, don't write with your shoes on. Welcome to this very special edition of Public Reading Club. It's the midterm edition of Public Reading Club. I am your host, Matt Caputo. Today, we have a very special guest, sincerely one of my all-time favorite writers, reporters, and uh, probably one of the, the closest friends that I've had in writing over the last 15 years, just somebody that uh, we've been in constant contact um, through the wonderful world of social media, and we've had long phone conversations. And uh, Mike Sager's an award-winning author and journalist uh he wrote primarily for the washington post rolling stone gq and esquire in 2010 he won uh the national magazine award for profile writing a number of his articles have been optioned uh for film and they've inspired movies and documentaries most famously he uh wrote the nonfiction story for rolling stone the devil and john holmes that became the fantastic movie Boogie Nights. And he is our guest today. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Nice to talk to you. I, uh, I'm i sorry I was late today. I, I violated one of my rules of my 50-some tips for reporting that we're not <laughs> talking about today. But uh, my always been be 10 minutes early rule was uh, violated, so I apologize for that. Mike is a absolute legend, and uh, if you listen to the show at all, you will know that our previous guest, uh, John Richardson, the episode is available now. I think that was episode nine. He um, released his book uh, in participation with Mike's imprint, The Sager Group. Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've done with that recently before we get into the nuts and bolts of your writing advice? Sure, Matt. Sure, Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, it started a long time ago when they first started doing ebooks, and basically, I had about five books out, and one of them, and they made them into ebooks without even us telling us authors. You know, those were big five, big six at the time publishers, and and you know, they made e our books into ebooks, and Amazon sprung to life, and all this stuff was happening, and. Basically, they, it just showed up one day and we realized it was happening. But my best-selling book was not included in the, you know, the four that they had online. Um, the one that was the bestseller, Scary Monsters and Super Freaks, uh, which was my first book, um, that wasn't included. And like a typical writer, I kind of had a shit fit and called up and said, why isn't my book included? <laughs> And uh, they said, well, we don't have the rights to it because I guess at the time they made the contract, it wasn't included. So um, 
very early on, I realized the benefit of this sort of electronic publishing in terms of legacy. Like, I've always kept a scrapbook. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I made my first scrapbook of my college writings while I was sitting at home after quitting law school at Georgetown Law School to become a writer. And in those days, there was no answering machines unless you're a wealthy person who had an answering service. And so sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, basically, you couldn't leave the house like nine to five. Mm. So I started making this scrapbook out of uh, my old law binder. You know, I had a loose leaf binder and... I started like cutting out my stories from college and putting them into the binder. And um, I, I have like, I don't know how many of them now. I have a whole bunch of binders, like everything I wrote. It started to get difficult after the internet because like you can't really, you know, print out everything and stuff like that. But um, the point is that I always wrote for me to be able to say like I did it. And then I like seeing it. Like, I, I, you know, it's that's the most important part to me. Like, I, I mean, I like it when people like know who I am or read what I did. Or, but the thing I know the most is most of the time you spend as a writer, nobody knows you. It gives a shit about you. You know, you're just like in your office. You're like sweating over sentences. You know, <laughs> writing them a thousand times, which nobody understands. And um, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to. Um, be in positions where things are lauded or, you know, there's like viral or whatever it was before viral, you know, like you were known for something. And, um, but aside from all that, and like aside from the th other thing that you learned when the whole Amazon thing came in, that any Tom, Dick or Harry can say, give you how many ever stars they want and say you can or can't write. So it kind of like doesn't really matter what anybody thinks. It matters that to me that I've been able to spend, you know, 46 years typing <laughs> and um, for a living and um, that the shit that I've typed um, is still available. Which is awesome. It's relatable, which is one thing that I always, it's one of my rules of writing, I think, is that you try, uh, you know, there's some kind of writings where you want to be cute and you want to like call out things that people like recognize and all that stuff and like, you know, shouting out stuff. And, you know, those are the small things that are small, but the, the types of articles that I was writing was, uh, you know, stuff like Gay Talese or Tom Wolf or, you know, those were my models, people whose writing really like endured. Um, in fact, a favorite type of furniture that I like is is uh, by the Stickley Brothers. It was called Arts and Crafts and, or Mission Furniture. And its mission was to last and increase in value. And um, so taking all those things together, like I write for the legacy of it. Like I never thought I'd be a father. I just wanted to write stories or write something that people would remember that. And I also think it comes and I think Matt, you'll understand this a little bit because like I started out as a jock, you know, I wanted to play sports. I played college sports. That's the reason I was late today because I hurt myself in college a lot. Mm -hmm. And now I'm paying for it at the various doctors, you know, 45 years later. Um, 
But in sports, you kind of get the chance to work hard and then prove you're special or give people a reason to see you. Like, you know, and writing's kind of the same. I, I've said for a long time that the least common denominator, the least common denominator of all writers is we, we all saw our name in print for the first time. You know, and it like does something for you. But I think on a deeper level, what it does is, um, you know, writers are people who think they have something to say and they want to be heard. And so for me, it's kind of like it's one thing when you're nine and you're at the wedding, the family wedding, and you're, they encourage you to stand up on the table and sing your little tenor voice. And everybody thinks you're cute. But it's another thing when you're like, 60 climbing up on that thing and you don't sing that good anymore you know you've got your singing's got to be great if you're going to demand people's attention and that's like i never that's what i thought about writing like it was a like i got to do what i love but then it was a supreme imposition on anyone else to read something and even for me it's like i can't read shit that's bad <laughs> like i've tried to read ulysses you know, like 12 times or something, seven times, I think it is, by James Joyce, supposed to be one of the best books of our time. And I just can't get through the first fucking page and a half. And <laughs> so great, it's a great book, but I can't fucking read it. And I, it's a big, it's an important part of, of what my, what I do is, is I'm writing for the reader. And so it's, and I think we could say this because it's non-binary, but it's a lot like, you know, I, it's like having sex. I want to please my partner by being really good at what I do in a way. And, um, and so that's the basis for all this. And so the basis for the Sega group was, um, and I, I stole this phrase from Ice Cube after I spent a bunch of time with him when he was, after he quit NWA and he, I was at there when he made his first album. In fact, I'm on his first album. Um, <laughs> Uh, they needed a white guy at like four in the morning to do it like a white guy voice. Come on. So um, for a gangsta fairy tale, if you play that, if you play the beginning, I'm like pretty chopped and screwed, but that's me. Um, who's like, sounds like a TV guy um, introducing the song. But um, so anyway, uh, writing is a, a sort of like a, to me, like an art form, and I do it for my self-expression, but I don't do it, I don't want it not to be seen by others. So I, when I do it, I spend a lot of time pandering to others. Yeah. Like, I write for the readers. Now, and I, but I also write to fuck them up. Like, one of my favorite things, and I'm sure it's one of these things on the list, and anyone who's listening, I would say... Um, you can get all my tips for, about writing at MikeSager.com. Um, it's just at the top. It says tips. It's a very like easy site. But um, these tips for writing um, came about because I was asked to do a reading at at uh, what was that? I think the Denver Post they called it in those days, and uh, I was doing like a writer. Uh, like uh, an education thing for the writers at the paper, you know, like, right, you know, continuing education for the writers and making them better feature writers at the paper and this and that. So they invited me to come up and they paid my way and all that stuff. And the, 
the PR lady who was arranging, or the human resources lady who was arranging it, like hit me up like a week before and she said, um, just email me your um, handouts and I'll Xerox them for everyone. And I'm like, handouts? Because, you know, I've been teaching for years and years and years, but I never had any fucking handouts. What year do you and, think it was, Mike? Um, it was in the years that I was teaching at Irvine. So it was in the mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s. Wow. Um, and, uh, and they were, like, having a conniption that I didn't have, like, a handout. So I just kind of, like, I was teaching these classes at Irvine. I helped start their uh, literary journalism major um, in those days. And um, I was teaching like one semester a year. I had a class. Of, it was like, it was brutal. It was 24 right people and I made them write every week. And so I had to read all that shit. Um, but um, I really enjoyed it. And um, so what I did was I went through the comments I'd made on all these people's papers and, um, and then I sort of like the way I wrote it. And the reason I'm saying that is if you go to my website and you find 51 ways to improve your writing, and then you also find, um, what else do we got here? I always forget what the numbers are. Um, 51 ways to improve your writing, 53 ways to improve your reporting. <laughs> and then there's 25 ways to improve editorial relations, which is basically a, a kind of a discussion about the weird Jungian, Freudian, fucked up relationship between writers and editors and how to navigate your around, way around that. Because if nothing else, you do get to express yourself, but you have to do it with the approval of someone else who's your daddy or mommy. <laughs> So there's those that, things there's are that very dynamic helpful. between between writer and editor. Yeah. So so all those things are available on MikeSager.com if we don't get to them all. Now I forgot the point I was gonna make when I made my segue. I don't know if you remember it. Um but I think what I was talking about was how I write um for my readers and because they have like so much else to choose from and reading is just like one small piece of the like entertainment pie like you could be watching a video you know listening to music i mean audiobooks has done a lot for reading um which is interesting too because i've always read out loud and that's one of my tips for good writing is to when you write you should read out loud um i remember i kind of developed that idea in a uh a rhetoric and comp course in college where we had to like do advertising. We had to do different kinds of writing. And for each one, I somehow figured out like if you made this voice in your head, like of the TV announcer, like when I was at the Washington Post, I like got the voice of like what the, like the news stories they did. And if you look, there's a rhythm and a, and a voice and a tone to everything. So um, that was something I always paid attention to in my writing. So um, right out loud. It's like, if you, t if you get out of breath reading your sentence, it's too long. You yeah. know, it's sort of like, um, that's why I don't recommend writing with music on or in a loud place 
like a lot of people do now. And I know it's, I mean, you can ride in a loud place if it's like white noise, but not with your friends hanging around. Right. You know? And I think music is too specific. I don't think it's white noise because there is an amazing rhythm to the words, which is my favorite part of writing. It's sort of like the flow of the words as they come off, you know, and it's, and all it is is like 26 letters placed in linear order with like, I forget how the number of exclamation marks, you know, that's all it is. It's like, you don't have that much to work with. Let me ask you like, something like, well, could you, could you take us through like what, when you wrote the devil and John Holmes, what was that writing process? Like, I'm sure the reporting process was so, I mean, there are so many vivid details in there, but do you remember writing that story? I think that was one of those stories that kind of wrote itself. Uh huh. I mean, um, that was one reason why in the early days I did a lot of crime and I spent a lot of time just like cutting the shit out of the stories I'd written to make them short enough and not lose many details. Mm -hmm. You know, I, so I would write like a 20,000 word story and then I would like hand in a 10,000 word story and then they made me a cut a little more sometimes or sometimes not or sometimes me handing in the extra made them s stay. But um, with stories like John Holmes, it's all about the reporting. And then it's about like the way you present it. So it's about like, and then it's about like getting out of the way of the writing and just letting the nouns and verbs like do their own work. Like, and not trying to like infuse it with attitude or like, you know, I have this one one little tip about writing where it's like, don't look look like you're trying too hard. And I, you know, when I'm standing up in front of classes, I'll I'll do this thing where like I always like read this writing, and it seems like the I can imagine the writer at their desk and they're going, you know, here it comes. I'm writing a big word. Here comes a big word. Amazing! <laughs> look at that word. Oh, you know, this is so clever. You know, and um. It's sort of like you have to be like ruthless about that and like what is somebody else going to think about it it's not like not about you because it's a very not it's like very onanistic writing why don't but we that's why go ahead go ahead i can i can you know i can start with my tips if you want well what i want to say is why don't we go through the tips so people have a better idea yeah. of how you broke it sure. down? why don't we start with the right. first one? well each one sort of sounds like what i'm doing now <laughs> um but uh, they are, like I say, MikeSager.com. You can read them yourself. They're all pretty self-explanatory, but um, I, I illustrate them as I go. But um, my very first one is thou shalt not bore. I mean, there's a million other things somebody could be doing besides reading your article. So don't like start it the same way as anybody else. Don't like be boring. Like find something to do to fuck with someone, to like get their attention. Like, it is a privilege to be writing so like and it's really a privilege to be read like imagine you're working at the washington post every day one million people are reading what you wrote you know you're 21 years old and like so it sticks with me like you're not there to bore people you know um and along those lines do not start stories with the time the season or the weather conditions i feel like that's a great you know, tip it's just a simple fucking tip that everybody fucking does it. <laughs> and it's just horrible. Like, do something else. 
I think you've broken that rule a few times, though, Mike. Well, sometimes I do, but it's like I also like breaking my rules and really showing how it should be done, too. See, I think I, that, I don't, you know, a rule that, is not a rule. A rule is like a guideline for what you. I think we end up with know. weather, season, and, and time and stuff like that when the editor doesn't like the original lead and can't think of anything else. Well, that, that never happens to me. I don't let that happen because editors can't write as well as I do. That's not what I, they employ me. So, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I don't write today because sometimes they're just writers who couldn't get the job writing, so now they're editors. So they just can't wait for the writer to hand some shit in that they can rewrite. Mm. Uh, but that's that, a story that for another too. day. Um. Um, do not start uh, do not start with it was it's or when a lot of newspaper writing it's when Joe Schmo heard that something 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 you know <laughs> and a lot of this is is like like a lot of this is not true because if you're working in a newspaper like the Washington Post it's like lead quote so what graph like I don't care who you are your story kind of has to start like that unless you're writing some weird-ass feature, which I did. And then I, I didn't stay there because I wanted to keep writing the weird-ass features, not the formula stuff. But it depends on where you write for, like, how you can write. Like, first and foremost, you have to write in the voice of the institution that's paying for you. And that's the whole thing about writing. It's like, until you get to be semi-retired like me and start your own publishing company and you never have a chance to say yes and no on your own. You know, there's always someone to please. So to me, my notion is be so fucking good that every, every time that you have to knuckle under and do what they want, you're going to do it like so much better than ever imagined. That it's like, you're going to shove it up their ass. It's so good. <laughs> you know? And that's just sort of like always been my feeling. And there's like, you know, I arrived in this whole scene. Everybody was from Ivy League schools. Like, I'd never even read anything. Like, they're better educated than me and all the rest. But, like, you know, I, I'm like a basketball guy. I was a sports guy. I wanted it. Yeah. And I also, luckily, like, being that guy, being different, like, and not having the credentials that everybody else did made me, like, like sort of wiser about things I didn't know anything about. Um. Do not use, like, if you're telling a story, and I, I, love, I love telling stories about, like, a day in the life of somebody. I fucking love that thing. Like, there's some, like, basic things of writing that are just wonderful stories that will never lose its appeal for me. I remember once I did a story about um, an air conditioning repair guy um, on, a, on a super hot day in Washington, D.C., and, like, Don Graham, the publisher, wrote me a note. I just, like... <laughs> Went on this guy's rounds, and that's sort of like the basis for everything I do. I'm like, I'm like the little kid in the workshop with his dad who knows how to step out of the way and knows when to come close. You know what I mean? I've like got that talent of being able to shut up and watch. So what you're talking then, about here, for the people listening, is do not use time, time subheads. For example, twelve fifteen, I guess a.m. or p.m. Right when you're telling these stories. To break up exactly. a feature story. Right. right. Just find some other way. Like, you know what? There's always the time, day, date, weather, season, and everything in my leads or in the second paragraph. It's just not the first paragraph. Right. Like, 
who the the five W's and the H are still like you know vaunted to me. Like, tell me what's going on, explain it. Like anybody who ever tells me, there's young students always say, oh, if they can't get this, then fuck them. Well, it's like, no, it's fuck you because they're gonna stop reading your shit. <laughs> you know, so like you gotta give everyone, you gotta spoon feed them and give them what they need. And what you do is you establish that chain of spoon feeding. And then you fuck with their head or mm -hmm. you in this metaphor, you like drug them or you, you know what I mean? You're like really manipulating your reader by what you tell them and what you don't tell them. And, but it's an art form. So the let's move one, on. The next one is get an imagination. If it's been done before, find a different way to do it. If it's been said before, find a different way to say it. Amen. And I think one way you can do that is the next one, if you can't find the killer declarative sentence to lead with, like it was a dark and stormy night, it's already been done, but the first time it was, it was like a classic Or You know, sometimes you just find like some lead and it's very like, you know, it was a, a few years ago more so, very in to try and like make a declarative sentence that starts right. off a story. And it's always a way to do something. But like to me, if you can't come up with that, then what you can do, and I'm a child of, you know, television, so I think like a camera. So start in close on the guy's hands playing with the cards and back out in your description. So you start with the hands playing with the cards and you like have some fun describing the cards and then you back out a little way and you see the arms and the person and then you see the place and then you... Like if you think of Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson, the people who had those like, like, and the kind of the way I talk, those like digressive sort of, you know, ways of looking at things. Like, it's like, break it down. It's sort of like, it, again, cause it's linear, right? So you can only give people information that they're gonna grok in a linear fashion. So start small, they see the hands, they see the man sitting there. They see the place where the guy, uh, the man's sitting. They see the people he's sitting with, et cetera, et cetera. Like pull out, or like start like uh, you know in the sky. Like there's a bus driving along this route, and then you go inside the bus, and then there's this kid, that kid, the other kid. You know what I mean? It's like like use your camera. I like if the you can't think of something definitive. I like the next one a lot. Use all five senses. Yes. A lot of people rely on describing clothes. Like, the thing is, and this is a really a different, so, uh, a wider subject is like, not only, what, not only using all five sentences, but what to describe and how to omit things and use the telling thing. Like, an important part of writing is not to like, describe too much but to leave some up to the writer i mean the reader because when i teach my i teach these disadvantaged kids they give me like the the hard cases like they only give them pencils like when they need them and then they recollect them and stuff um but um um shit that made me lose my point um Use all, all five, five sentences. Um, but I was going to say something else. Um, 
Oh, uh, sorry, it's been a long day. Um, like you can't describe everything. And the reason you don't do that is because like you want the reader to fill in the blanks. And what I tell to the kids is like writing was kind of the first like um, interactive game where the writer writes, but the reader brings details to what the writer doesn't give. So you give some, but not all. And then the, the writer sort of like becomes synergistic with you. And it's why if you've read some book and then you go see the movie and they're like, oh, the main character wasn't right. Or, you know, it didn't, this didn't seem right. Or the setting was different. That's because you bring things to it. So when you're a writer, you know, don't be so narcissistic not to understand that what you're really doing is, you know, you're kind of, you're making love to the writer, to the reader. You're, you're like, you're pulling the reader, the reader in. You're like, I think I, I wrote in this one thing, you're like, it's like hand over hand. You're pulling them, pulling them, pulling them in. Like every time I, I get to a, like a, a section break, I like stop at a cliffhanger. You know, it's like, I always like leave them wanting more instead of less. It's like, keep pulling them along, pulling them along. And so using all five senses, it's like, what does it smell like? You know, what does it feel like? You know, I think a lot of times today we, we rely a lot too much on first person. So everything is experienced through the writer. And I think the thing is, is that who else is there but the writer? The writer experiences. So just, you don't have to say, I did this, that, and the other. Just write it. It smells like this. It smells like that. Well, I think it's good. I you think know, it's, it's advice like, because it's it's like it's like write it as you see it. The next um, piece of advice is draw images from the bowl of details you gather in your reporting. Yeah, so you're, um, you're you're kind of writing it as it is if you're reporting. Well, right. the bowl of details is an important point because um, it's sort of like I have this thing where you can't fill the bowl and spill it out at the same time. So when I go to the scene, the bowl is up. Think of it as a pitcher, whatever. Um, and it's like a spigot is filling it up with all these things. And the things are what you observe, the interviews you transcribe, you know, record and transcribe, the ancillary reading you might do, the historical reading you might do. You know, all these things are in the bowl of details. And then it's sort of like you use them sort of like a collage artist you know, to put together like the pieces to that make this collage of this many layered collage, like mixed media. It's like pieces of paper and glass and shells. And it's all this stuff that you pick up within, you know, the practice of like being and observing and talking and trying to understand. You know, that's your bowl of details. And that's what you should write out of. It's sort of like you talk about writer's block. You know, writer's block means you have nothing to say. Not that, you know, it's, it's, it's like if you go out and you report and you fill the bowl of details, then like you asked me before, how did I write John Holmes? Well, John Holmes and other stories like that write themselves because 
I mean, yes, it takes carving of the sentences, all the different crafts involved in like, you know, the, the minor details of it, you know, because there's, you know, there's so many different elements of writing. There's like structure and then there's, you know, like the little brush strokes, you know, so it's like there's a it's a whole it's like building a house, you know, but you're doing all the jobs and you don't have to get up from your seat. The next one <laughs> once is once you get home. The next one is you're doing a great job moving me along, by the way. I'm trying nice my best. Play. The next one is employ the elements of drama. Right. Um, I touched on that a little earlier. It's sort of like, don't tell too much. It's almost like best way to explain that is like start the story the minute before they shoot themselves and then have them shooting themselves the last, last, last scene in the whole fucking story. Right. Absolutely. So many stories start out with the courts. No. Why would you continue reading? I remember this one story I wrote about, um, I always call it my sort of uh, companion piece with the John Holmans called uh, something about Savannah, um, the, this porn star who killed herself during the vivid girl era. Um, and I remember this student coming up to me in my office, I'm so mad at you. And I'm like, what? Like, cause I was smart enough. Of course I assigned my own textbook to the class. And she said, you made me read the whole story to find out what happened at the end. I'm like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what you really want to do is like, you don't want to, like a lot of people are like obsessed with like finding the best stuff, stuff for the lead. And for me, it's like find the second best stuff for the lead. And then your ending should be the best part. And unfortunately, you know, in the, in the late era, I found that like, that's very difficult to get across with. Like a lot of, a lot of people in the more recent era have wanted to rewrite the whole story because the ending was so good. Yeah. And the reason the ending's so good is because you build up, build up, build up. It's like a comedian where they have a callback, you know, and all through the co comedy, they like have the same joke going. And that's how you know you're in a good comedy show when they have a callback. Well, it's like the same with writing. You know, all the elements of things that entertain people should be employed when you're entertaining. It's yeah. not like, the problem is, let me just finish this thought. The problem is, is writing today, especially, which has become more and more prevalent in certain ways, is because starting with MySpace, like, and moving forward to all of the social platforms and all of the self-publishing, it's like anybody can be a writer who wants to. So there's no reason not to like drone on and be really good. Like, it's like people just think everybody wants to hear what I say. And I think that's sort of like the, the thing you should be watching out for. And, and, and here you go. Um, these go along with that. Like don't reveal everything all at once. It says, so, I, I think we skipped over tease the reader with benign manipulation. Right. Well, that's kind of what we've been saying here, that the reader, you're fucking with the reader's head. And, um, and that's by what details you release and what you save. And, um, you know, you're not like, you're not like lying about it. You're just not telling everything. My favorite example of that is I wrote a whole story about called the secret life of a beautiful woman for Esquire. I, I followed around this woman who 
would later become famous as Brooke Burke, the TV personality. And wow. um, she's really amazing. She's in her 50s now. She like does this yoga stuff. She's like still beautiful. And she was just sweet. You know, she was the nicest person. And um, you know, the whole idea was just to be able to look as close as possible to be able to understand like what is the meaning of all of the little things that they do that add up in the long run to behavior, you know? So what I try to do is I go to a place and I spend like, you know, I used to spend four months on a story altogether, but I would, I would probably go like three times to see the person, usually a week or a little more each time. And, um, during, during those three months would be like a time period in their life. So I'd look at that time period and see what's this, what was the story arc of the period of time I was there as a way to kind of like bring the reader into telling about a person by having like a continuing drama. This is one thing I got from um, like Tom Wolfe, especially, who he was like, always trying to push, 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 keep the action flowing. Like in Broadway, almost, they say louder, faster, funnier, you know, with, with journalism, if, it's like, if you can find some drama, there's drama in everyday life. And like, so if you can like, and there's drama in everyday little tiny details. So if you can like, so like Brooke, she was going out with this guy. And at the time he was like, um, known as the the Hollywood surgeon and uh, plastic surgeon, and they were a couple, and they were living together, and there was all this stuff, and um, like so, he was kind of in the story too, and and like sort of the tension was Christmas was coming, and was she going to get engaged to him or not? Like, was there going to be engagement? Um, she wasn't sure. Do I still have you? Yep, I'm here. Okay, good. So. They, the tree is up and Christmas is coming. And of course, I'm going to go home for Christmas. I'm not going to be there. But all the stuff is under the tree at Brooke's house. And there is a little small ring-sized present among the heap of overdone Beverly Hills boyfriend and girlfriend presents that they were giving each other. And um, there was this whole, she had this whole thing where, should I open it? Should I not open it? And it, it seemed like like the best thing to do, like at the very end of the story, there was this whole, this, the tension was, is he going to marry her? Is he going to marry her? I think he's going to propose. I'm not sure. Then like the people in his office are giving her meaningful looks. And like, so the whole tension of the whole story, when I come back to this, this part of the story is that. And then, so the last part of the story is she spies the ring under the tree and she reaches for it. Well, she finds a box under the tree and she reaches for it because she wants to see once and for all, is he going to propose? And so I left the story there. The story ends with her. Should I do it? Should I, you know, it's like a real moral dilemma. I don't know if I should open it. Uh, we go through this whole thing. And then she's, well, she's going through this whole thing. I'm just describing it. And then so she reaches down and picks up the box. And then camera goes to black. Wow. Now, in real life, she opened it up. It was earrings. 
and they didn't get engaged then. But like, it doesn't matter what was in the box. I didn't report that. And it's not like one thing I like about this reporting, there's not as much, you know, there's a, there's a who, what, when, where, and how, how um, that are required, but there's not the same rules of like what the story is trying to do. That's like interesting. The story is just yeah. trying to be an entertainment, which shows you about the life of this person. So, which is the nature like, of the profile. Yeah, it, it is. And, but it's like, I, I felt like this would shame her and there was no reason. It would be like much more interesting if I didn't say, you know, so it makes my, and I, I, the ultimate person I write for is my, my reader. Cause that's another thing in here. You need to think that, you know, maybe that's in my reporting list. Well, the next tip is make sure your lead hooks the reader. Yeah. Well, this is all, you know, this is kind of like all from the same school of, of don't write the same thing, like every time, like, you know, find something that like draws you in, but doesn't tell you the whole story. But, you know, and then your, your job to, should be like drawing the reader in and over and paragraph over paragraph, keeping them reading it. Cause you took like two hours, two days, two weeks, two months to write it. Like you want them to finish it. So you do all the stuff you can um, to make it to make it attractive to them to finish the story and get to the ending. And then you want to knock their socks off as a thank you. And that's what you mean by employ holy shit details. Yes. Like that was a Bob Woodward thing. Holy shit details. And uh -huh. what they refer to where I, when I was at the Washington Post learning that, Bob Woodward was talking more about like, the holy shit details of news. But like, holy shit details are holy shit details. It's kind of like, when you're a story writer, go back to the top, thou shalt not bore. It's like the same thing as being a friend at the local tavern, you know, table with all your other friends or at the bar with your friends or whatever, and you're telling a story. You want it to be funny. You've got the floor, you're telling a story. Like, make it bright, make it, you know, you're, you've got the floor here. Like, so, you know, that's, that's, that's your major, that's your major goal. Something I really and like so, here is, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Something I really like here is ask yourself, why am I using this detail? Yes. A very good one. And that again runs to give me something besides clothes. What's telling about this person? Every fucking person has something telling. Like, and like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, like this person could wear a big hat and a color super, this it could be like an older woman with a big hat, colorful earrings, you know, whatever, a million details. But if you like, just talk about the feather earrings they're wearing and the, you know, that are hanging out to their, you know what I mean? It's like, choose something. And then, and, and, the things that characterize something and not, it's not only what people do, but it's like, it's not only what people say, but it's what they do. So that's why, you know, you want to, you want to interview people, but you also want to like not interview people. You just want to observe them and like, what are they doing? And then you can ask them like, why did you just do that? That's a great, like Tom Wolf thing. That's also like in the reporting thing. It's like, um, he has this great quote in one of his books that like, 
uh, as a reporter, you're like going everywhere to gather details. Why shouldn't you like go inside somebody's head too? Yeah. You know, and um, for me, that's always like, what's the motive? What's, what was your motivation for doing that? And that becomes a big line of my question. The other thing which would be as a, a, another reporter trip, uh, uh, trick or whatever is that I always spend like one third of the time I have allotted for reporting on like doing just a life story of somebody. Yeah. And I have a little joke. So you were born in a log cabin. <laughs> and for 46 years, I said that to every fucking person. Like, so you were born in a log cabin. Like, everybody knew it was like a little colloquial thing. And recently, it's funny because this guy, um, his name was Old Mike Sager. I did a story where I went around the country. I, uh, when the internet was young, I was appalled to find out there were like a million Mike Sagers. <laughs> so I, I, I identified 139 of them. And I went and visited like 16, I think, across the country. And one of them was old Mike Sager. And um, before that, I, I was, he was in Illinois. And before that, I saw his cousin, younger cousin, downstate in Illinois, who was at the home place, still living at the home place. So mm -hmm. I go to old Mike Sager and I start out, so you were born in the log cabin. And I think I'm so funny because this is an old time. I think it's really funny. He says to me, oh, you saw the place? <laughs> that's funny so i know he just died so when, another another great tip is when in doubt cut it out yes um i think that comes to the whole idea that editing um it's like for me the process of writing is like you vomit up the sentence and then you like put it together or you, you know, it's like you, you splurt out all the paint and then you're like using one of those like knives to like make it into something. Just like you found like my, the backspace erase key becomes one of the most important things that I use because it's sort of like you vomit out the ideas and then you're like the pressure's off and then the craft begins. So then you're like, you're, you're like, you get this. It's like, that's why, you know, it's like, inspiration and perspiration like that's what writing is a combination of it's like i don't know where i get these ideas it's like it's like the butterfly thing where one thing i've learned here in you know nepal like like collides with something i learned in the crack gang and <laughs> it becomes an image you know inside my brain and um and i i, I compare something and and that's sort of like um how the writing should be. Um, but then there's also the part where there's like how writing is effective and there's the study of the craft of that. And it's not just grammar and, and syntax, which I'm a little bit of a formalist because I used to, you know, not like comma and it used to piss me off like Oxford commas and stuff yeah. like that. And, um, but then I learned over time that if you use the grit, the most beautiful thing about standard English is like you can you can create the music of writing like with just the letters. Yeah. The exclamation points. You can create the sound of the voice with just these letters. You That's know, which is profound. Yeah, sure. I mean, and it is. It's like. And nowadays it's, it's like we don't need that. But the trick in this one comes back to how it's an interactive game. So 
you know, the people who still want to read, they're getting a deeper, richer experience. And it's so, it's funny because so much of today's life is how you want to customize things. You know? Absolutely. And how, which, like even those movies that have several endings and you choose one, but like writing is that from the fucking jump. That's true. Because it's like, and, and I guess it translates into audio too. So that's kind of the one advantage we have nowadays. And we've been we've been kind of scrolling through these pretty fast, but there are two tips that are right together here that uh, I really like. One is if someone reads this 20 years from now, will they understand the reference? I think that that's huge. Um, I, I really think that those stupid pop culture references that have littered writing um, both online and print, and it's almost everywhere you go because we live in this crazy marketing era. Um, yeah, I I. I really feel yeah. like that's a great piece of advice. Like, the yeah, I mean, I'm reference. glad you singled that out. I think we like talked a little bit about that before. Um, I, I, I can, I still cringe that the story I referred to about Savannah. Um, I violated um, that law in that story, and I said a guy had Luke Perry sideburns. Wow! And then later on, I went and I changed it. Where'd you change it to? I don't, I don't remember. I just James Dean. <laughs> I, I don't remember. Well, there that that's a different kind of cyber, but um, or maybe I didn't change it. I don't know. Then but, there's um, but like you want you don't want to do that too much. Like if like you said, so and so like Madonna, like and then it's like which Madonna, right. which Michael Jackson, like which whatever. So I don't know. I just like. Again, because because the reason I'm in writing is for the longevity of it. I know what my story is like se seeming dated. It's really funny. Like I wrote the very first story about hip hop culture. Like when I when I spent like four months with with Ice Cube and rode around with them. And like, you know, before that. It ended up becoming the second. The first hip hop story was like just like a a music review, historical culture, Rolling Stone thing about uh, um, who's the three guys from New York, you know, the famous guys. Um, they're still in the business. Um, that was the first story. And then the second story was this Ice Cube piece. What, Run DMC? Um, yeah, Run DMC. And the second story was this Ice Cube piece, which was supposed to run on the cover, I remember, but then it didn't. It really pissed me off. But it was like... Like I've had since had reviews of the like because there's a lot of anthropology in what I do. If I'm going to go to a crack gang, I'm writing an anthropology story. I'm writing about what it's like to be in a crack gang, you know, and um, or what it's like to be a beautiful woman, or what it's like to go to high school, or or I did later. It was great. Esquire, David Granger, he he really loved this form. So I did like I found a clown. Like in, you know, it was like 2000 and something and we were writing about clowns and everybody hated fucking clowns and this guy had been a clown his whole life. And, you know, he was like really like a super talented musician who had gone to a music school. And, and but he was like, you know, he was a clown and everybody like cried when they saw him. And it was just like funny. Or I, I wrote a story, that, a great story, which nobody would have ever assigned um, about an ugly guy. Like, what was it like to be ugly in L.A.? I remember and, the story, yeah. And, you know, those, uh, the thing I like to say is 
those were the, it used to be a magazine had three stories in the well. They had this yeah. thing called the well. They had the front of the book and the back of the book and then the well had the stories. And like one of the stories was a celebrity profile because you had that one. One of the stories was, you know, some kind of deep something or other that was like, this is magazine journalism. And then the third story was like, that's where my stories were because they were like the, the secret life of a beautiful woman, an ugly guy, uh, like all this shit that it was kind of like the first to go when there were only two stories left, you know, because they were like stories about, I, I used to call them Seinfeldian in a way. They were like about everything and nothing. And, you know, I once wrote a story about called 50 Grand in San Diego, which was about like this, young black marine and this who had married this white woman from like the central valley of california which is very kind of racist and they're raising two kids and just like he was staying doing this staying at home dad and i just like for four months on and off i went to his house and like helped helped him raise his two little you know mixed kids and who did you write that for that was for esquire too wow um, oh, uh, then, one of my collections it's one of my favorite stories really the next the next tip that i highlight is don't put yourself in stories unless absolutely necessary he told me ugh the byline should be enough a fucking man especially lately like two of the last stories that the washington post has have really touted hardly just hard they touted it hard in their in their feed and one of the people I actually know, a young person I know um, pretty well, but um, both stories were like three paragraphs of first person. I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect when I went here, there and the elsewhere and I this and I that. And like, fuck you, who cares what you think? Shut up, like write about the person. It's kind of like, at Esquire, we developed this thing called What I've Learned, which is a way to, um, was a Q&A with celebrities without the Q. It was like totally like not about writers' personalities. And it was really developed in reaction to this thing like the developed late 90s, early 2000s, the, the Vanity Fair profile. And I was just a joke, you know, you, the first paragraph was about the writer sitting at the table and it was her favorite establishment and then some other bullshit and some other bullshit. By like the fourth paragraph, you learn that um, the person that they were having lunch with was Jesus Christ, who was down to earth for his second coming. I mean, it's kind of like, why are we writing about this is your favorite table at a restaurant? Like, I don't care. You know, you're supposed to be the eyes and ears of like the, the reader. And then you do all your fancy stuff behind the scenes. There used to be this, this great commercial um, said, uh, for Secret. It was like, never let them see you sweat. Yeah. You know, um, secret deodorant. Never let them see you sweat. And like, that's how writing should be. It should never be like, oh, look at me showing off. I'm so great. I'm so great. Like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of writers like that and they get a lot of attention. And the first person writers, especially, you know, ever since the era of, like I said, over the last 25 years, when everybody has an, a fucking opinion and everybody gets a trophy, then, you know, like writing is supposed to be a meritocracy. 
you know, and it's, and to me, it's a game best played, you know, without yourself in it, unless, yeah, I mean, on, I think first person stories can be some of the most memorable, you know, but first person really just means that you can't do your job usually. Like, so, yeah, one of my, one of my famous first person stories about hunting Marlon Brando. Um, the, the most famous story ever written, and I just got a glimpse of Marlon at the end. I don't mean to ruin my own story. But yeah. like the most famous story in, in magazine writing is Frank Sinatra as a coal by Gay Talese, who he never fucking talked to Frank Sinatra. And that's really the point. Like, you know, then it was about the writer. And maybe the writer's like fucking more interesting than Frank Sinatra, which is probably the truth, which is brings about the whole thing about you know, maybe singers should sing and actors should act and, you know, they shouldn't be interviewed. I, that, um, I mean, I, I came to think that. I think like, that when the budgets of the magazine industry broke down and I think that when there was this kind of switch over to the internet um, kind of a thing, I, I think a lot of it became first-person stuff. Um, a lot of it became... Uh, kind of memoirish writing and ultimately I think a lot of that stuff is actually assigned on spec so it kind of eliminates the well, law. It's also what you do and nobody will pay for you to go and spend four months like learning otherwise. Right. You're absolutely you know, it's just like like that's what you know I started to say you have writer's block because you have nothing to say. And if you just go day after day to the coffee shop and write about your personal feelings, of course you have fucking nothing to say. That's kind of true. Um, you know, it's like, it just write, use your personal feelings to, like, one of my most famous stories is about a, a 92-year-old man, and I wrote it when I was, like, 40, and I just, like, changed my life by moving to a new state and all this stuff, and I had a kid, and my whole life was changing, and, like, all the emotion, and plus then during the, the whole thing, my back went out. So um, what I did was, I didn't say, oh, my back went out and it made me feel like the old guy felt. I just like used that to like express it and then to talk to him about it and like in such a way that like I, like the reason like I got John Jones, the MMA guy to say to me, you know, oh, I can go do coke and then go out and win the next night. You know, I mean, it was because like, kind of like at the beginning of the thing, I said, look, I did free base with Rick James. There's nothing you're going to tell me. You had a dick pill, big fucking deal. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, like, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to be part of the story. You're talking I just about want to John understand Jones, you. the champion of UFC, John Jones, the light heavyweight champion, who I also profiled uh, for Muscle and Fitness magazine maybe 10 years ago. And he well, came to great. the photo shoot so um, he came to the photo shoot so dazzlingly out of shape that yeah. we, we had to take the cover away from him. So he couldn't appear on the cover because he was in such bloated shape. He uh, that's funny. He ordered a sandwich. We went straight from the gym to his to his convertible um, um, Corvette, and I will never forget this. Um, we're gonna go take a ride and smoke some pot, <laughs> and 
he takes out his glass pipe and then in the cup holder he has like a um a bud and it's dried so he just like crunches it up in the fucking cup holder like who would do that <laughs> nobody who would fucking do that the mike the last two tips that i want to focus on today before i let you go and this has been a really yeah. fun interview i want to get you back on here to discuss some of your books i know you got another one coming out not too long from now but one thing I definitely want to discuss is you've got a couple of tips here um, that kind of bunch together about dialogue. I'm going to read them out. A little dialogue goes a long way. As dialogue runs, have the characters do business. The business should be telling something that advances the story or the character in a subtle or not so subtle way. Uh, only use dialogue that advances the action, the information, the details, something in the story. Don't have people talk just for talking sake. What what's your take on dialogue in both both nonfiction and fiction? Well, your former Esquire, first of all, your former Esquire colleague, for anybody who cares, your former Esquire colleague, Tom Shirella, has a whole book about creating compelling dialogue. <laughs> well, in fiction. Yes, you know, it's a lot different than in nonfiction because nonfiction, what you're doing in nonfiction is giving in the appearance of fiction. So you're like giving the appearance of scene without running the whole scene. So that's why just picking out a few lines of detail, not running, running, running. What, what happens to people is, and I recognize this because I used the tech recorder for 40 years. One, I have like every different kind. One one model of every different one in my desk. Um, I threw all the tapes away though at Rolling Stone lawyer's advice and boy, do, am I mad because all the producers keep trying to buy it. Um, you threw, oh, wait a minute, you threw all of your tapes away? Yep. Why? I just like, wasn't gonna keep them. I was advised not to keep them. I had a transcript and that was the, that was the Bible. Wow. And then there was, you know, that was it. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about dialogue, the use of dialogue. Oh yeah. So, so dialogue is like smoke and mirrors, like to journalism. So you don't need that much, but like when I told said before, like use your camera, you know, it's like the digression of dialogue. So if you're going to have dialogue, it's like, first of all, who's having the dialogue? What do they look like? Like, what are they doing? You know, where are they? What's the scene? It's like a great way you can like, you can have like two lines of dialogue from each person, four lines of dialogue. And like, it creates a, like an ambiance. You know, like I think my, uh, the John Holmes story was interesting because that was one of the stories I didn't collect. I had to like, like uh, spelunk. I had to like collect it like a mineral, like a, a miner. Because I had to get all the dialogue out of um, court cases and stuff like that, or or interviews. So, you know, you get like three, four lines of dialogue out of a court case, and then, but but you can like build like a whole thing around it. What's happening when this is happening? Who are the people? What's going on? And then the dialogue, like I think, like at one thing, the the like the punchline of the dialogue is they called John Holmes donkey dick or something. You know, um, and, but 
so it makes it funny and makes the reader want to keep reading, but also it's kind of like it becomes the vehicle for describing different details, you know, all this digression really. Like Joe Smo, who's this, who went to this high school, something, 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 or da-da-da, said Joe Schmo. I And another thing about dialogue that we didn't mention is, I don't like, what I started to say is people get enamored of the sound of tape, so then they'd want to run the dialogue because they think the reader can hear what their tape recorder heard, but it doesn't. So you have to like remember that. So, um, you know, use it sparsely, but use it, and, and also another thing I used to do with my tapes is instead of quoting everyone, I, um, I pulled colloquialisms out of the dialogue and used it as descriptive writing. You know, sometimes yeah. you have to do like word, comma, to, that, that explain the word and then moved on. Um, but so all of that stuff, dialogue is very telling about how people act. And dialogue is interesting too, because um, like people write dialogue, I'm sure Kirill must point this out somewhere, like in dialogue, real dialogue, people don't answer each other. Like, and I get a lot, of, I'm a publisher now, so I get a lot of fiction and some of it's not too good. And, and there's a lot of people that, that would have just, you know, like have this conversation, like, Really, a conversation is two people like slinging arrows over top each other or whatever, you know, or at each other or whatever. Um, it's not, it's not like, it's not, uh, you know, anybody who's ever transcribed a dialogue. And that's, that's why I know, I, I know so much about when I transcribe everything, then what that means is I can spend my time with people and like, not have to like listen and remember everything they say. And then it's weird, like the way my memories developed, like I can hear the replay of a scene with like four or five people in it. And I can remember what was happening. I can remember who was saying what, that's like my, my way of memory, remembering like a scene. And then I just like describe the scene. I like try to like, it's almost like you're, cre when I, when I write a scene, I'm, I'm creating. I'm. I'm. I'm creating a paint by numbers, almost. But I'm doing the painting. <laughs> I'm doing the creating of the sketching and putting the numbers in, and then I'm. I'm like adding in, you know, stuff. And um, I don't know. So, so dialogue is a, a more advanced, you know, skill. I would say of the other things. And I think that a, a writer should start as I did, looking at sentences. I, when I was a young, a young writer at the Washington Post, I took Paul Hendrickson's, all of his clips that they had in the library and I like defaced them with a pencil because he used to write these short sentences with just nouns and verbs like all the time. Yeah. And it was beautiful. And I mean, so I think, I think it, it behooves a writer to like, to study deeply of other people's writing and then like throw it the fuck away and like see what comes out. You know, that's my, I think that's, I think that's a good, I think that's good advice because I think after a while you merge the best practices into your best practice kind of. A I thing. mean, you're the same as a musician. So all your musician friends, they know all the music 
They've played it all, and then they're trying to make their own now. So that's the way, like, it's just like, we're just like AI. You download this stuff into you, and then, like, it becomes part of the, like, what's available to the AI to create. And um, we're just doing that as human AI. Mike, we're running out of time. I want to let you... I want to segue out here by asking you, Mike, what, what's your go-to advice for writers? What's the, what's the little gem that you, well, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that the best advice I ever got about writing came from, um, from a friend of mine who, who, um, well, I actually got it from Jerry Stahl, who got it from a guy that I used to work with in the library in Queens. And it was never write with your shoes on, which is actually proven very, it's proved it's proved to be very effective for me. But what's your go-to advice with with, with about a minute to go before we're uh, we're knocked off here? Well, I think the first thing I I ever say in this direction is a writer writes, and um, like, don't be one of those writers who hates writing. If you don't like to write, then like don't. Um, and I think that's like the best advice to start with because it should weed you out. Otherwise, you want to be like Kobe Bryant of writing. Like you want to make every sentence perfect and you want to know how you can be better. And, um, and that's all that matters to me. Like I just want to be better and better. And like even to the point where I had a mentor, he and I always, he, he used to quote Louis Armstrong. He said, if they, if they don't get it, they don't get it. You know, like that's yeah. fine. Um, but you're doing it for yourself. And so you always want to like make it the best you can do. Mike Sager, Public Reading Club, thank you so much for joining us today on WXCI 91.7 from Danbury, Connecticut. Really appreciate your time. We hope to have you back on again soon, Mike. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. And hello to all the readers. And uh, thanks for giving a shit, you guys. Everybody should check out the Sager Group and the Stacks Reader series that they've done together with the editor Alex Belth. Uh, there's a there's a ton of great nonfiction titles out there. Uh, they come. Let's through. not forget my fifteen books. Yes, and Mike's fifteen books. <laughs> all types of all types of great. He's got a couple of novels in there. He's got some excellent uh, nonfiction collections. Some of my favorite books that I own are Mike's books. Mike, thanks for talking to me today, pal. Be well. Talk Thank to you soon, Matt. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we collected some great advice um, from the different guests who visited us on Public Reading Club over the last, uh, I guess we're at 10 episodes now. Um, but we picked out three that really stood out and really sounded like direct advice. The first one came from Peter Blauner who got his advice from the prolific newspaper man and writer uh, Pete Hamill. So Peter Blauner on writing. And while I was at Wesleyan, I uh, decided that I was learning more from real life than I was from uh, the classroom. I had uh, spent a uh, summer working for one of my journalistic heroes, Pete Hamill, in New York City. Um, How old were you? I was 19 years old wow. at the time, and he taught me the three things that I really needed to learn about writing within the first time I had lunch with him. He said, uh, if you have an experience and you think there's any chance you're going to write about it, write down 
every detail about the experience, whether you think it's interesting or not, or whether you see the point of it or not. Because when you write about it six months or six years later, that detail will emerge as the most important thing. And if you don't write it down within 24 hours, you won't remember it. Second thing he taught me was um, always ask the hardest question you can think of. You may want to make it the last question because the response may be, get the hell out of my office, and, and frequently it is. But more often, it's the beginning of a more honest conversation. And the third thing he taught me was always read people who are better than you. Um, and there's a corollary to that. I, I, when I was uh, researching the book, we were going to talk about Picture in the Sand. I spent a lot of time in Egypt, and I met um, the Nobel-winning novelist Naguib Mahfouz, and he said, I've learned more from the near great than I have from the great. And that makes a lot of sense. Like somebody who's like a total genius, like Shakespeare, it's, well, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> but but if you read uh, Raymond Chandler or Dashai L. Hammett or, or somebody like that, you can sort of see, oh, okay, I, I understand how he got from A to B to C uh, in some way, whereas Shakespeare went from A to J, and I, I don't really understand the logic of how. Um, but you were asking me also about working for the newspaper in Norwich, uh, Connecticut. The Bulletin. Uh, yeah, the Bulletin. Um, and uh, that that was just a great hands-on experience. I started off writing obituaries. Then, you know, I, I did uh, some planning board stuff and got to work out the Uncasville Bureau and the New London Bureau and the Basra Bureau. And this is long before there were casinos up wow. there so yeah, it was uh, really a chance to put some hair on my chest were you doing any crime reporting back then at all or uh, yeah a bit a bit that, but that much more came later when I, I came back to new york the next piece of advice we got was uh from reed farrell coleman on episode six which i thought was great um it's just kind of about being active with your writing and doing as much as you can to help uh, shape your story and formulate your ideas. I, great piece of advice from Reed Farrell Coleman. Actually, I'm full of advice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the best piece of advice I can give any writer is there's no such thing as wasted writing. That the more you write, the better you'll get. And it's the way to get better is to keep doing it and not to hold uh, onto your writing too dearly. It's words on a page or words on a screen, and you can change them. So never fear uh, working on your on what you've written. The last piece of advice we'll give you is from a writer named Chris Belden, who's the author of a novel called Shriver, which was recently turned into a film called Little White Lie. He's been a writing instructor for a long time, and he talked a little bit about kind of fighting that voice in your ear or that negative inner voice that writers sometimes struggle with. So some sage writing advice from Chris Belden. What's I, your writing advice? What's like your go-to piece of writing advice that you give anyone? It could be simple. Uh, don't listen to, uh, uh, we're not allowed to curse on here, but the, the, I'll, 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 um, I'll call it the poop bird, <laughs> uh, which is a bird that sits on your shoulder and says you can't do that you can't write that you know your mom will read this or your friends will read this 
or you know somebody will will think you're crazy if you write that that bird is always on our shoulders don't listen to that bird in fact strangle that bird and i love animals rolling in the heat and there you have it for the midterm edition of public reading club i'm really proud of all we've done with this show um in less than a year all the guests that we've had on and i would really love to do more with it um as long as i'm here at western connecticut in some capacity uh, i do plan to graduate in january of 25 but i do want to continue uh, to do the show as long as i can i i would love to have more writers from the westcon community and anybody else who wants to pass through here come on the show i have a backlog of guests i need to get on the show and um just uh stay tuned we obviously out is episode nine recently with john h richardson which was really fantastic it was one of my favorite conversations we have a chat coming up with chris belden who is um a local writer and editor who just uh, released a book uh, featuring incarcerated writers or writers who were previously incarcerated and we have uh, an interview in the can with Zeke Fox which will be out pretty soon so stay tuned to Public Reading Club I hope you enjoyed this episode we really want to get a diverse group of authors on here so if you hear the show and you want to get in touch with us we're on Instagram uh, you could email me, Mr. Mr. Period Matt Caputo at gmail.com. You could also try the public reading club at gmail. Uh, we're very active on Insta. So, yeah, just get in touch with us, uh, especially local people that could make it down to the studio. Uh, this is another episode of the public reading club, the midterm episode of writing advice. I am Matt Caputo, and this has been a production of WXCI. 91.7 from Danbury, Connecticut on the campus of Western Connecticut State University. Hope you visit us again soon on Public Reading Club. Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio. Hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.